let's go ahead and, and jump in because like I said, I do think that this will be the longest session, mainly because I'd like to set up what the doctrines of grace are and why we need them or why we should care about them. So I, I do think that when we consider the doctrines of grace, and I mean this as humbly as I possibly can, but I, I think we could simply refer to them as biblical doctrines, the, the biblical doctrines of God's saving grace. So the way in which his grace is worked out in the lives of his creation. I think we could say that they're biblical, but I, I also understand that that may be a contentious thing to say because of what I'm about to say. And historically, the doctrines of grace are referred to as the five points of Calvinism. If you just realized what has happened to you, you can't leave now, right? But I, I will give you the caveat of I, I and all of the pastors here, and I, I think this church at large, we pride ourselves rightfully so in being what is called a kind Calvinist. And so there are going to be things that we will discuss in the, the weeks following today that some of us may be a little like less inclined to just be like, yeah, that's right. And if you're like, yeah, that's right, probably just lower that volume a little bit because that's why we are where we are, right? Uh, historically, and we'll just go ahead and jump in, uh, the five points of Calvinism, yes, while they stem from John Calvin himself, they were never compiled as such by him. In fact, what actually happened is there was this, um, well, it was really a council, but they called them synods. There was this synod of Dort where the Dutch Reformed Church came together in, I believe it was 1618, and there were two camps within the Dutch Reformed Church, those who were considered Arminians or the Remonstrants, and those who were considered Calvinists or the Counter-Remonstrants, right? Maybe this is where our problem started, <laughs> the Remonstrants and the Anti-Remonstrants. And you had these two groups that were understanding the doctrine of soteriology or salvation differently. So all of these various parts of the way in which God saves us, there were two groups that understood these things almost completely different. And so you had the Arminians, and they created what was known as the five points of Arminianism. And then you had this other group coming in to have this conversation within the Dutch Reformed Church coming with what is known as the five points of Calvinism. And so, of course, John Calvin, the great reformer, he and his well, really in the line of Augustine, and then Luther and Calvin, you have a recapturing of the sovereignty of God in salvation. And so you have this big God who is in control of all things, including every aspect of saving grace. And they came and they had probably what was an argument, maybe a, a battle, but it was really over this idea of God's sovereignty in salvation. So here are the points that they argued. So I'm going to start with the Arminian position and then go to the Calvinistic position. And I think on your handout, the very top portion of that will help you understand what I'm talking about here. But the points are this, the ability or inability of man for salvation, the conditional, that is there are conditions or the unconditional election of man unto salvation, the unlimited or limited view of Christ's atonement and what that means. And obviously we'll get into that in week three. What it means there is, who did Christ die for? So we're not just saying that Christ died for all men. Like That's true in some sense, and I think it's even biblical to say that because the Bible itself says that. But what is the extent with which his blood is made effective and saving in the lives of his creation? That's kind of the argument there. 
the resistibility or irresistibility of God's grace. So can you run from God when he chooses to save you? And that's kind of the, the thought there. And then the ability to forsake, that is lose or persevere, that is maintain in God's grace. So what is our main concern in all of this and, and what is at stake? And I think in the line of the reformers and many theologians that I respect, what is at stake is God's glory in salvation. I think it's nothing less and nothing more than that. We are considering God's glory as it pertains to salvation. If we go to any other arena to try to figure out why this is important, we're going to fail because we're in the wrong place. We want to consider God's glory in salvation. So it's either that his sovereign grace is from first to last, that is from the beginning to the end, or it's not. I think that's kind of what we have to agree on, and I hope that we'll make that case as we go. But he is either completely sovereign from first to last, or he's not. If at any point God is not sovereign and man becomes sovereign in any way, then logically God is not fully sovereign, right? So God's glory and salvation is what is at stake. The doctrines of grace are pieces of a whole. So it's like a five-spoked wheel with a hub in the center. All of these things either are together or they are not. They rise and fall with one another. And what I mean by that is I think and I believe and I will try to at least make the case biblically that if you, and here's kind of the uh, cringy part, if you eliminate any of the points of Calvinism, I think in a sense you have to eliminate all of them right? Why is that scary? Because when we get to limited atonement or what is better called particular redemption, we kind of be like, well, is this one really necessary? Not to be a part of this church, it isn't. Because as long as you believe faithfully and can articulate the gospel, that's what makes you a member of this church. But whenever we start diving deep, we start to realize, okay, wow, these are really big things. And maybe, maybe they require my assent more than I have thought that they do. And I think when we consider all of these five together, that's actually what we're going to see. And I think it won't be scary. It'll be delightful. And whenever you rightly glorify God in anything, what ends up happening is you end up receiving great, great joy. And I have gleaned that from Calvinism for many, many years now. Just joy in understanding God's sovereignty and salvation. So that's a little background. Here are two definitions. One is a Presbyterian definition. The other is a a Baptist definition. And the reason I did this is because I want you to see that unlike something like baptism or the Lord's Supper, there is really no deviation from many Reformed churches in this area. In fact, we would all agree on every point of Calvinism. And so the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a wonderful and helpful confession of faith. So If you are ever trying to understand doctrine or theology and you want kind of like a commentary, you know, I don't know if you've ever used a commentary, you're in Genesis 1 and you're like, man, I really need to, I'm going to go look at Bruce Waltke's commentary because I've heard it's amazing. And I want to see what he has to say about Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, because I just don't really understand what it means to be made in the image of God. And I'd really like to know that. So I'm going to go to this commentary. Well, the same thing with doctrine. You can go to the Westminster Confession of Faith, except on some points, and those would be uh, about baptism and some about the Lord's Supper. But in other areas, the Westminster Confession of Faith serves as a really, really helpful commentary on matters of theology, so what the church has historically held to. Now, when it comes to the inability of man, so total inability or total depravity, 
And depravity just simply refers to the sinfulness of man. So when we say we're depraved, essentially what that means is we are wholly affected by sin. And we'll get into it in a moment, but it doesn't mean that we are as bad as we can possibly be. It means that every area of our life and our being is affected by sin. We are totally depraved. There is nothing in us or of us that hasn't been given over to sin. And so I think total inability is a way better way of understanding it because I think it gets to the point better of, okay, when it relates to salvation, we're not just sinful people, we're totally incapable of doing anything because of what we're going to talk about today. I think that's the better way to say it. So here's what the Westminster Confession of Faith says in chapter 9.3. It says, man, by his fall into a state of sin, has completely lost all ability to choose any spiritual good that accompanies salvation. So there you go right there has completely lost all ability to choose any spiritual good that accompanies salvation. That is the total inability. Therefore, an unregenerate man, that is an unbeliever, because he is opposed to that good and is dead in sin, is unable by his own strength to convert himself or, this is key, to prepare himself in any way to be converted. So not only can you not save yourself, you can't even do the work necessary to be ready for it. You don't need to be clean before you come, right? He accepts us as enemies. And so New Hampshire Confession of Faith, Article 3, it says, we believe that man was created in holiness, that is in the garden, Adam and Eve were perfect, under the law of his maker, but by voluntary transgression fell from that holy and happy state, in consequence of which all mankind are now sinners. So that's the doctrine of original sin. Because of Adam and Eve, we are all born into a state with a nature of sin. And it says, in consequence, which all men are sinners, not by constraint, but choice. So there's an important key. We choose to sin. So we're not just born sinners, and it's like, well, that's just totally unfair. I was reading something recently, maybe it was for this, I have no idea, but it was so helpful. And it was talking about how Adam and Eve were the prototype for all humanity. And we're like, yeah, duh, that's what they are. Well, you know what that means? It means that they are the test case for what every single one of us would have done had we been created holy and perfect in God's image. <laughs> so what that means is they did what every single one of us would do, all right? The first Adam is the one who has brought sin into this life, and then the second Adam is the one who has undone what we cannot undo ourselves. And so you, you have Adam in the garden being the prototype for all of us. And so we all choose sin. It's not just something that has been placed upon us. And it says, being by nature utterly void of that holiness required by the law of God. So there's the total inability. Void of the holiness required by the law of God. Positively inclined to evil and therefore under just condemnation to eternal ruin without defense or excuse. So just in case we're not clear, when God expects something of his his, his creatures, he expects uh, the standard of perfection, right? So sometimes we don't think about that because we live on this side of the cross and we don't have to rise to the occasion of perfection like they would have had to in the garden. You do realize that they were created without sin, righteous and holy before a holy God. That means the standard was perfection, to, to do as God would do. And they were given the ability to, to do so. And so what this means for us, though, being in sin is we can't, so the standard never changed. You understand that, right? 
the standard of, of perfect, holy righteousness never changed. That's why we can't atone for ourselves. We have to have Christ to do that for us. Why? Because he is fully God and fully man, and being fully man, he never sinned, ever. He attained the letter of the law. He was perfectly righteous for us. And so the standard never changed, and that's why we in our state needed Christ. So, so what does this mean? And then we'll get into these scriptures here. But, but what does this mean? So like I said, it doesn't mean that we're as bad as we can possibly be, but that sin has affected every part of our being. So our, our body, and I think there are many of us in here who have been ill or had something. I see people that have had cancer, um, brain surgeries. Like our bodies are affected by sin. If you've ever had a, a cold and you've woken up and your throat is a little hoarse, sin. Right? Not necessarily your sin. Like I'm not saying you're being punished, but sin. That's not supposed to happen. It's not supposed to be that way. This was never the intention. You were never supposed to wake up with a sore throat. And so our bodies are affected by sin. And then we have also, obviously, our minds. So we are given over to a depraved state. That means that sometimes you're going to be short with your wife. Or think, actually, no, let's just go to something way more simple. It's, be, it's easy to be short with your spouse. Who has ever gotten into a fit of rage? It happened to me this morning. You're driving and someone in front of you doesn't drive like they're supposed to drive. And all of a sudden, you're like, you know what? I'm going to ram them. I'm going to ram them. I can't do this. And then you pass them, and you're like, I'm going to look at them. I'm going to look at them. And then you look at them, and it's, it's an older lady with a handicap sticker, and you're like, <laughs> like you're lucky. I was going to take you out. You're lucky you were 76, cause, <laughs> right? That's our mind, we're given over to depravity. So we're, we're given over to, uh, you know, fits, fits of rage, in a sense. And, and as simple as we can get angry, very, very angry, driving on a road. Okay, okay, okay. We have cars. We can afford gas. We don't have to walk places, and we're mad about it. That's depravity, right? And then obviously our spiritual state. They're all infected, influenced, and most importantly, enslaved by sin. So that enslaved is going to be really important as we look at total depravity. And so the conclusion then is that we are incapable of any entirely pure, keyword entirely pure, motives in what we think or do, and most particularly in salvation. So we are unable to do what is required of us to be saved. We are not able to do what is required of us in order to be saved. So let's make the case biblically. And I've given you this handout because I think it is really important. As much as I would like to continue giving you history lessons and thinking through these things, I don't think that my words are infallible at all. I think, in fact, that probably they're more fallible than any of us in this room. I don't regard myself highly, and so I can study and I can regurgitate things. That's not impressive. I think most of us can do that. I think what we need to do is we need to look at the scriptures and many of them, and honestly, with humility, make our case. So what I want you to be free to do as we go through these in particular is I want you to feel free to push back. And obviously, we can't do a ton of interaction. So if you know we get to the first scripture and we have 14 questions, we're doomed. So we're never going to make it. Um, we'll be in week 48 of total inability. So I don't think anybody wants that. So you can feel free to interact, but let's make sure that we let it flow as well. And um, I, I want us to, to hear from God and see what he has to say. Okay, so six things, and there could be a, a bajillion things, but six is what I've limited it to of headings that I think would be really helpful. So 
The first is that we are born dead. So Genesis 2 and Romans 5, but starting in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, here God records through Moses, and the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay, Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So here's what we see in these two passages. In Genesis in particular, we see that the death that they are going to face if they eat of this tree, which we know that they do, it's expressed through their hiding from God and then shifting the blame for their sin. So the very first thing after they eat, God doesn't immediately show up and he's like, what did you do? Right? He could have done that and it would have, that'd have been pretty cool because they would have been terrified. But what he does is he comes in and they hear his voice and they're like, oh no, we have to hide. And so you see this shift immediately. And here's what he says, the, the day you eat of it, the moment you eat of it, you shall surely die. What does he mean? He, he could, I guess, mean that someday you're going to die. If you do this, instead of living forever, someday you're going to die. Yeah, that's, that's true in part, for sure. That is definitely going to be one of the curses, is that they will not live eternally with God, at least in the state of the garden. They will suffer physical death. But I think this death is much more immediate, and I think primarily spiritual. And we see that in the fact that when they hear God coming, they try to hide themselves. So immediately there's a separation from this holy God. And, and then you see them shifting blame. He asks Adam, and Adam's like, well, the woman. And immediately, really, the first sin is disobedience, but it's, it's self-preservation. They don't want to be near God, and they want to blame one another. All right? It's not me, it's her. It's, oh, it's not me, it was the, the serpent. Immediately, shifting of blame. And so immediately you see death being this thing that, is not only something that has happened to them, but it has become a part of their nature. They are now dead people who live like dead people. They hide from God and they shift blame for their sin. This is a part of who they are now. They're no longer those who get to walk in the garden. A part of their nature is being those who are cast out walking east of Eden. And so this is positional before God. Yeah, you're gonna die, but as I see you as a holy God, you're already dead. You've died, you, you disobeyed, and you are now reaping the rewards of your choice, which is death. And that means separation from me, and it means living now in your sin. I, I mean, seriously, the, the very first thing they do is they, they shift blame on one another, like husband and wife. Like a holy God comes, and, and could you imagine husbands? I mean, just, we can't. But God coming to you and being like, what happened? And you're like, oh, it was my wife. I mean, seriously? Think about that. I mean, that's, that's, that's really heavy stuff. Think about it this way. If someone came into your house and they were like, hey, I've got to kill one member of your family. This is really more, but I know. I have to kill one member of your family. Who is it? My wife. I mean, seriously. This is what it means to, by nature, be a dead person, to be able to op- offer up your wife. I mean, you're already a sinner. Just lie to God and say you did it, <laughs> right? Like, no, it's, it was her. And the reality is, is it wasn't even just her the mandate was for him to share the commands of God with her and to care for her and protect her. And they failed. And so we are born dead. It's by nature who we are. The the second thing is we are unable 
and unwilling to seek God above ourselves. So Genesis 6, Jeremiah 17, and John 6 there. Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? And then John 6, 45, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So what it's not saying here, especially in the Genesis and the Jeremiah passages, what it's not saying, again, we just need to make this point, we're not saying that they, that is humanity, was as bad as possible, but that their desires were not godly. So I think in particular, when we think about the Genesis 6, we look at them, eventually you're going to have the flood to eradicate this wicked people from the earth. And, you know, you'll see the Tower of Babel. And then even in that, the Bible is not claiming that these people were as bad as they could possibly be. That's not what was happening. What it means here is that as it relates to the heart, there was no desire at all for what is godly. So they have, because of their nature as dead people, been deceived by their sin. Every intention of their heart is for wickedness. It's, it's sick. You have a sick heart. Everything that you think, everything that you do, in some way, is marred and tainted by sin. Now, I will say that when you have the flood coming, it does seem that the wickedness of the earth came to a head. Like, this, this, is a really, this is a really bad thing. I, I think maybe what we could potentially look at is like a Sodom and Gomorrah on a large scale. Th- there was a sense in which this kind of needs to be eradicated, and Noah and his family are the only ones who are seen as, as faithful in God's eyes. But they are deceived by sin for sin. So not only is it a part of your nature to, to be a dead sinner, you're actually deceived by that very nature to desire that very thing. So a dead person desiring what dead people want. And our heart, we see, is inclined to serve only us. That's kind of the point that is being made. And you'll hear pastors say, like, don't follow your heart. Don't trust your heart. That's horrible advice. Why would you say that? This is why. Because in our fallen state in particular, every intention of our heart is towards sin. And I think, you know, we look at this and we're like, well, yeah, but what did they do? Well, does it matter if they didn't desire God? That's, that's the whole point. You can kind of sum it up to they desired themselves over desiring God. Well, how wicked were they? Enough to not desire God. It, it doesn't really matter what they did. If they were committing murder or if they were just doing stone check fraud, right? Like, let me just chisel this one. I can make that into a one real easy, right? It doesn't matter. The whole point is that your heart is, is desirous and it longs for you. Like, this is who you are as a dead person. This is, this is a part of your, of your nature here. So then, John 6, it says that we won't or that we can't come to the Lord unless we're brought. So what this means is that we can't do what we wouldn't do. If every inclination of fallen man's heart is for himself, then we would never come to the Lord because it's not something we can or would desire to do. That's, that's kind of the foundation of, of building this idea of total inability. Not only are you dead, you wouldn't do what you can't do. And we'll talk about that a, a little bit more towards the end. 
But that's why this John 6 is so important. And when Jesus is saying, and they don't understand, it's, it's so very sad for them that when Jesus says, no one can come to the Father except by me. I mean, well, number one, that's true. But secondly, that's an invitation. He, he's inviting them to, to see who they are really and earnestly with not rose-colored glasses. Like, take those things off and see who you are and see what I'm offering to you. I'm, I'm being honest when I say you cannot come to the Father unless you come to me. And that's obviously the good news of the gospel. But it also shows the total inability or depravity of man. We cannot come to God under any circumstance unless we are drawn. A dead man would never do what a live man needs to do. Okay, so number three. We are born unrighteous with a longing for unrighteousness. So Romans 3 and John 3. It says, Romans 3, starting in verse 10, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. John 3, 19 and 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So we are motivated by unrighteous principles which lead to unrighteous pursuits. So even our good is motivated by self-glory, and therefore it's not an acceptable good. And what these two passages, I think, are saying really together is that we love sin because we love me. That's kind of the whole point, right? We, we love ourselves more than we love God. It's a part of being a fallen sinner separated from God and without Christ, is we love sin because we love us. Look at any of our young children. I mean, it's, it's so, well, I don't know. Let's just talk about mine. It's terrifying sometimes how easy it is for them to lie, right? Did you, um, did, let me ask you a question. Did you do the thing that I just saw you and recorded you doing? No, dad. Huh. Wow, that's what happens. We, we love sin because we love us. It's, it's self-preservation. It's, it's wanting to preserve our own glory and our own sovereignty. And we don't want to be told what to do. And, and we don't want anyone giving us a standard for how we are to live. That's, that's a part of the problem in our culture that we see all around us. Nobody wants to be told that there is an objective reality, that there is, a, there is a truth that is objective, that is not arguable. And we say, no, I mean, whatever I feel or whatever I want is right. And, and a huge part of that is, yeah, I mean, I think, I think philosophy has been really unhelpful in psychology in this realm, but it really goes back to Genesis chapter 3. We love us. So you start bringing people, and, and I mean very, very smart people, and telling you, no, 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 no. Sex is about pleasure. 
It's about you expressing yourself. It's about doing what you want to do when you want to do it, with who you want to do it. And we say, that sounds nice. And the next thing you know, we do because of who we are. Point four, as dead men, we are enemies of life. So Ephesians chapter two, you know, Ephesians chapter two may be my favorite chapter in all the Bible. I don't really know what my favorite chapter is, but I think it's this one, at least verses um, one through 10 in particular, but one through three. Here, Paul says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So here it is. Let's logically break this down. So what is the position of man outside of Christ? Well, the position is that we are dead in sin. So who is that? Everyone outside of Christ. So all of those without Christ are dead in sin. Why is that so? Not because we can blame anyone else, but because of what Adam and Eve did that we certainly would have done ourselves. But as Paul says, because we fulfill the passions and desires of our flesh. We are those who walk around looking to fulfill the passions and desires of our flesh. Now, take it off the extreme cases of, okay, well, I'm not like sleeping around or committing murder or like doing bank fraud. I'm not doing any of those things. And yet you, you may have fits of unrepentant anger, right? There, there's, there's not like some sort of sliding scale of like, okay, well, I'm like not bad, bad. Like that person, that person's bad, bad. Okay, well... That's, that's not really what we can do here as it relates to Ephesians chapter 2. So position, dead in sin. Who? All. Why? Because we fulfilled the passions and desires. What? What does this mean? What does this make of us? This is really important, and I think sometimes we can skip over this. We are, because of all of these things, children of wrath. So we're not merely poor souls. We're objects of God's wrath. Whenever we look at Adam and Eve, it's sometimes sad because they lose. It's, you know, like paradise lost. That's what it is. They're, they're east of Eden. And we look and we think, man, oh, they lost that. That's awful. Well, no, that's not what's awful. What's awful is that they are now under the condemnation of God. You have Adam and Eve being created so intimately by God, right? Forming them out of dust blowing in life into the nostrils, taking out the rib and forming woman. Like those are God's children. Like he formed them with his hands that don't like exist, really. Like I don't know how he did it. He's God. But he's intimately forming them and he's living with them. And in a moment, they become children of wrath. That's what is at stake. So they are dead men meriting death unless something happens. You are dead men, and, 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 and like, get this, and we're going to talk about this in just a moment, but like, they're dead. Dead. Dead, dead, right? Not just dead. Dead, dead. And because they are dead, they are children of wrath. That's not a great place to be in. So, unless something happens, you are doomed. That's what Ephesians 2 is saying. And that's why whenever we read it, you know, we always say, 
but right everyone like everyone gets their like deepest voice and but god right that's why because we all are like oh man this is horrible and then we get to the but god and we're like yeah right this is like the church this is our pump up music right we're about to take the field but god oh here we go i'm gonna break through the banner that's why it happens because i i think we we understand just how dire this this situation is okay number five we are unable to do that which is not according to our nature so by nature we are dead first corinthians 2 and jeremiah 13 it says now we have received not the spirit of the world but the spirit who is from god that we might understand the things freely given us by god and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom but taught by the spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So Paul's talking about himself and the other teachers in the church. Verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And then Jeremiah 13, 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. Obviously, Jeremiah is being a little facetious there. He intends to say, then who do you think you are, right? That's kind of the point there. So we are unable to do that, which is not according to our nature. So we, according to these passages, in particular the first Corinthians here, it is outside of our ability to understand, to even understand, let alone choose what is righteous, because it is outside of our nature. We as dead men, as those who have fallen into sin and live in sin and whose hearts are wicked and desirous for ourselves, we are not even able to understand the things of God, let alone choose them for ourselves, because according to our nature, we are dead men doing dead men things. That's what Paul's actually talking about teaching here in 1 Corinthians. We, we are spiritual men giving spiritual things, but the natural man can't understand it. So the gospel, then, is outside of our reach unless we are given eyes to see and ears to hear. We cannot understand the gospel unless we are made to understand it. And I think, you know, we have this, this wonderful picture in the gospels of, of Lazarus coming out of the tomb. And, and you see the principle being illustrated for us. You know, this is not just about a man physically rising from the dead, though it is, because Jesus is God himself and he is sovereign over all things, even life and death. But it's, a, it's an illustration of spiritual death and spiritual life. We, we don't see Jesus coming to the tomb and Lazarus being like, my boy's here. <gasps> and then he comes out and he's like, Jesus, I, I sensed, I knew, I knew you were here. I knew you were here to do what you were gonna do. No, he, he doesn't anticipate anything. Lazarus has no thought in his mind because he is by nature dead. And what Jesus does is Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And then what happens? Then Lazarus stirs. Lazarus does what living men do because why? Because he was given life. And so his actions, Lazarus's actions, were preceded by the gift of life. And so in Reformed theology, we, we say that regeneration precedes faith. So you don't, you don't choose by faith Christ. He makes you alive that you might choose him. That is one of the parts of God being sovereign from first to last. And his 
glory alone being the thing which makes salvation so wonderful, right? You guys, I'm assuming that we're all believers in here. We were dead men who were called unto life. That's who you are. That's amazing. You, you didn't merit anything. And, and the Lord gave you the gift of life. It's amazing. Okay, number six. Salvation is only possible by death and rebirth. This is one of the great paradoxes of the Christian faith. So John 3, 2 Corinthians 5, and Ephesians 2. So Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Ephesians 2, 4, 5, and then 8 and 9. But God, right, there we go. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Why would it be important that this happens this way, that we might not boast? Because if we could, we would. We are still sinners. Though we are saved, we are still sinners. If we have a reason to boast, we will. Or at least we will be tempted to do so. Right? Paul wants us to be so clear whose work this is in our life. And so here we have the new nature, that is regeneration. We have been given hearts of flesh in place of our hearts of stone. We have a new nature. So the natural man must die and the spiritual man must be born. So the natural man, he has to die. He has to go away. And the spiritual man, he needs to be born. So I, I don't think there's really like a better example of total inability than birth, right? Who here had a key role in their birth outside of you being the baby? That's, that's the extent. In, in, in the credits, it's like, baby, your name. You're not man two. You're not doctor number one. You're not nurse five. You're just baby. You're the one that all of this happened to. And what John is telling, or excuse me, what John is recording of Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus is such a clear picture of you can't do this for yourself. You can't be born again. You, you can't choose that. You can't be born the first time and you can't be born the second time. The good news is though, there is an open call for you to come to the one who will give you life. That's, that's what's amazing about the gospel is there is this call that goes out to everybody. And we say, if you have not repented of your sins and placed your faith in Christ, if you have not done these things, then all you must do is confess your sin and trust in Jesus and you can be saved. That's the gospel. But God's work is regeneration. He is the one who brings life. So how should this shape my theology and impact my life? So I think that in particular, total inability today, but all of these, what will end up happening is that this doctrine, these doctrines will shift all of our hope and praise to Jesus. So I hope today what has happened is that you have been able to at least momentarily get outside of yourself and have all of your hope and your praise and your glory shifted to Jesus. Like if this is true, then this makes Jesus that much more marvelous right? This elevates him. It's, a, it's not a good look for us, but it elevates Christ, which is 
amazing. It's, it's wonderful for us. So, four quick things. Uh, we must understand that rejectors of God is who we are by birth, and that by nature we are all dead in our sin before a holy God. This means that there is no sliding scale of righteousness. So, even the most docile sinner is still unrighteous. So, your unbelieving family members, you know, you go to the whatever you do. I don't know. Do people still do reunions? I don't know. You're going to a reunion, and you see Uncle Bill, and it's like, man, this dude is a bad dude. And then you see Aunt Carol, and you're like, she's so sweet. If they don't have Christ, they're still unrighteous. There's no sliding scale. So, what that means is that we should be encouraged regarding those who seem beyond grace. So when we look around at our friends or our loved ones and we think there's no way they could ever be saved, that's not true. Why? Because we are all totally depraved. We are all totally unable to come to Christ on our own terms. So this is actually encouraging to us as we look around at unbelieving people around us in the world. Right? There aren't even murderers that are beyond God's grace if that's what he intends. Number two, even on our worst days, we are still those who have been made alive in Christ. So you may be thinking, does God care for me? It seems like he has forgotten me. His love never decreases from the reality that he gave his only son for you. You were a dead man and he gave his son Christ to die for you. That will never change. So even on the days that you feel so separated from God and you feel so distant from him and you feel so weak in the ability to live the faith and walk the Christian life, always know that he loves you so much that he gave his son to die for you. That will never change in your lifetime. And that should encourage us. And it should help us when we feel those moments of weakness and fits of sin. That how much does God care for me? How much does he love me? Even though I'm doing what I'm doing right now and I feel so bad about it and so sorrowful and I'm crying out to him and I just, I feel like he doesn't even hear me. He gave his son to die for you. That's how much he loves you. Number three, our attempts to please God and do works of righteousness are meaningless without the spirit of God. So this means that because he has filled us with his spirit, he has given us all that we need to obey and worship and grow in grace. And like I said, 1 Corinthians 2, he has given us the mind of Christ. We don't even have to wonder what God wants for us. He has given us the mind of Christ, and that works its way out most typically in his word with his people. And then finally, number four, total inability gives us our greatest picture of a good and gracious and terrifyingly holy God. So in Isaiah 6, I was telling the staff this just recently, it's so interesting that when Isaiah comes into the throne room, that the seraphim are there and they are just perpetually there, crying out, holy, holy, holy. And one of the interesting notes in that is that they have all of these like feet and hands and things. And, but at one point, it tells us that they're covering their eyes. And perpetually, they are giving glory to God. And guess what? The nasty, awful sinner who has filthy rags, he's the one that gets to look at a good, holy God. Think about that. The, the seraphim have never sinned in their lives. They're created to glorify God, and yet they're not allowed to look at him. Who is? Us. Total inability gives us our greatest picture of the good and gracious and terrifyingly holy God. So total inability, it elevates the cross of Christ to its proper place, our glorious and our only hope.